0: Good morning, church. You should be in that tiny little epistle of Jude, which is right before the last book of the Bible, right before Revelation. And if you're just tuning in to this series in Jude, the series that we're calling Contend, it's not going to be too difficult to catch you up to speed. Jude is the brother of James, which means he's also the brother of Jesus, but he refers to himself not as the brother of Jesus, but as a slave of Christ because he's, he's speaking humbly and he's speaking with a humility that is different from the, the life pattern of those that he's writing against. There's some people who've invaded the church that he tells us about in verse 4 who are seeking to undermine the faith, to, to rip the church apart. And so Jude writes with humility to this church that he's likely established or helped somewhere along the way. And in verses 1 and 2, he tells us, look, you can be confident in fighting for the faith, not because you're special, but because God has adopted you as his children. You're kept in him, beloved in him. You have mercy and peace and love from God in abundance. And so you can have confidence in engaging this fight. And then in verses 3 and 4, verse 3, he tells us, you've got to contend for the faith. It's a battle. It's a struggle. It's striving. And then in verse 4, he says, why? Because there are... These imposters who have crept in to the church. Now, in verses five through seven, it's almost as though Jude is going to anticipate this response from the church. Do we really have to contend for the faith? I I, I understand that we have confidence for contending. I understand you've told us why we need to contend, but do we really have to? Can't we just put it off for tomorrow? It's a lot of effort to contend and to confront sin. Is the purity of the church and the faith upon which she's founded really that important? Do we really have to fight for the faith? And in response to that question, Jude offers verses 5 through 7. Would you hear now the word of God? Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels, who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality, And went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Would you bow with me? God, help us to consider the consequences of accommodating sin in our lives. Help us to consider the consequences of not contending for the faith. God, as we Think about Graduation Sunday and a new generation that we're launching out into the world. God, may we be a church that's found faithful with our stewardship of the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. And may we entrust it into the children and the students that you've given us the great opportunity to invest in. And we ask it in Christ's name, amen. So in response to these questions, Jude has said in verses 5 through 7, That compromising when we should be contending brings deadly consequences. He uses three Old Testament examples. And Jude wants us to learn from the examples of those who've rejected the Lord in the past and what what came upon them because that same paradigm of sin and consequence of judgment holds to this day. So Jude wants us to know to contend for the faith we must consider the consequences. And there's three. We must remember the danger of unbelief. We must remember the dishonor of rebellion. And we must remember the destiny of the immoral. The danger of unbelief, the dishonor of rebellion, and the destiny of the immoral. First, the danger of unbelief. In verse 5, Jude says he's reminding the church of something that they already know. When he says they know all things, he doesn't mean they know every scientific fact in the world Right? He's talking about all things pertaining to the gospel, and that the folks who have infiltrated the church, who are acting contrary to the gospel, that they don't know all things, but those who hold the faith know all things that they need to know in order to fight for the faith. There are several different words for knowledge in the Greek. The word that's used here means to see something or to perceive something. They can perceive, if they're honest about the situation, that there's a problem that needs to be dealt with. Notice that he says, you know, all things once for all. And then he goes on to talk about the danger of disobedience by repeating that term once for all, which was also used in verse three, the once for all delivered to the saints faith. Here's what Jude is saying. He's saying that God's judgment of those who refuse his authority is a part of the faith. The faith has been delivered once for all, and the fact of God's judgment against sinners who refuse to repent is a once for all reality. It's irrevocable. There's, there's a whole movement today in, a, in America that wants to have the same faith by which God saves, but He's not really saving you from anything. There's no consequence for your for your sin, or your rebellion, or your failure to repent, or trust in the Son. Oh, he's just going to cover it all in the end, and it's going to all come out in the wash and be fine. No. If you don't deal with Christ and the blood that he shed for you this side of the grave, eternal consequences wait, period, full stop, end of sentence. The church must contend for the faith. And we must respond to the idea that you can come into the church and take the church casually because that attitude brings the wrath of God. Schreiner says this, those who are God's people demonstrate the genuineness of their salvation. You want to know how you're really saved? It's how you respond to the warnings that God gives. If you can say that you're saved and then do nothing about His warnings, there's a warning light that should go off in your head. So in urging the church to respond to contend, what does Jude do? He does what many good parents do. He reminds the church of what they already know. You know what this next picture is a picture of? You know what those are? Those are death, about ready to be put on someone's feet. Yeah, you might call them flip-flops, but they're called flip-flops. You know why? Because when you flip them on your feet, you'll soon be flopping down a hill. I don't know how many times I've had to warn my kids about not wearing flip-flops. If they're going to the park or they're going to be playing tag, oh, daddy will be fine. And then guess what? They're never, ever fine. One of the challenges of being a parent is repeating yourself ad infinitum. You're telling your kids something they already know, something they've already experienced. I don't know how many times my daughter's going to have to put flip-flops on before she learns that daddy's right about flip-flops. They are death on feet. Sometimes we need reminders of what we already know. Parenting brings me great joy, but don't we all sometimes get a little weary of repeating ourselves? But the church needed to be reminded. We need to be reminded there are consequences for our disobedience. For our failure to heed God's warning. Churches slowly die when they put off until tomorrow the hard work of contending for the faith that we must do today. So to warn us of the consequences of not contending, Jude uses a very familiar Old Testament example. He takes us back to the wilderness wandering. He takes us back to the Israelites who've been rescued out of Egypt. And he says that the Lord, or some very early translations even say Jesus, and surely Jesus was there because Jesus is the Lord. But whether he's talking about the Lord God or Jesus who is the Lord God, which would be an amazing commentary on the Old Testament, Jude says God saved a people out of the land of Egypt. And those same people who saw God do that ended up failing to believe Him and enter the Promised Land. Think about what they had seen. They... they, They had been rescued after 400 years in slavery. They had seen the ten plagues. They would seen God destroy Pharaoh's army. He parted the Red Sea. He displayed His glory in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And in the wilderness He gave them water and quail and manna from heaven. And yet, He destroyed those who failed to believe when He said to take the land. He's talking about Numbers 14. You remember the story. Twelve spies go into the promised land. Ten come back and say, oh, they're giants and we're grasshoppers in their sight. And it's only Joshua and Caleb who have confidence in the Lord. And they say, look, there's this land of milk and honey. And if God says to go, then we're supposed to go. There's no debate about it. You just obey what God has said. But instead of obeying God, the Israelites do what churches too often do. They have a business meeting at the border of the promised land. And rather than do what God has told them to do, they dig in their heels and they say, we can't go because they're so big. In spite of all the things we've seen God do, we will not trust Him now. As Aiken writes, forgetting God's grace and greatness, they dug their graves in the wilderness within the sight of the land that God had promised to give them. How is this possible? Saving faith in an omnipotent God means God is not limited church by our past or by our present fears. There are some here this morning that are this close to getting God's victory in your marriage, in your work life, in your career, whatever it is that God wants to do, in your love for your spouse, in your love for your kids, in extending forgiveness to that one who's hurt you, in repenting of that sin that you've committed against someone and you're afraid of what their response might be. The rest that God has for you is on the other side of obedience. And you've seen Him do great things. Why would you not obey? Just because people are around, by the way, when God does amazing things, does not mean that they believe in God. Just because you happen to be along for the party, just because the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt and now they're in the wilderness and they've seen God do all this stuff, does not mean that they actually believe God. Did you know you could just be Incidental, which raises a question for us in church life, right? Because so often we talk about the glory days of church life. Do you remember when we had that great program, that great cantata, that great judgment house, that great VBS, that blah, 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 fill in the blank, and we're always living in the past, but when God shows up in the present and says do something different, nobody wants to do something new and different because that might require trusting God today to take us into a new place of His rest. The glory days don't save you. God in the present saves you. Y'all here this morning? Hebrews chapter 3 verse 19 says the same thing that Jude is saying. They could not enter the land. Why? Because of unbelief. Do you believe God? Do you believe God's working today? That he wants to use North Roanoke Baptist Church in the here and now. Jude adds this, they were destroyed because they did not believe. It's not just they didn't believe, they were destroyed. It's not just they didn't get into the land, they were destroyed by the God who led them out of Egypt because they failed to believe Him in the present. A belief in God that does not lead to active obedience to God is really only a dead reliance upon ourselves. It's not faith in our past or our past achievements that saves us, it is God who saves us. Beware of people who tell you much about their past experiences and their achievements and what they did and what they led and little about how great Jesus is and how exciting it is to have even one tiny little sliver of a role in his mission. We are not assured of salvation because we walked an aisle or prayed a prayer or got wet or because we're charter members or because our dad was a pastor or because people respect us and our opinion. None of that will hold any water on judgment day. We are assured of salvation. We know that churches are alive not because of what they've experienced in the past but because they have an active and dynamic trust in Christ in the present. Roanoke doesn't need churches trying to bring back the glory days. It needs churches who are always listening and adapting and open to what it is the Spirit is leading us to do today so that we might take the land. But gospel imposters, those who invade churches, long for their own glory. They want that short-lived glory that comes from stirring the pot and unnecessarily sowing discord and raising questions at every turn. They want the glory of recognition and they have no room for the authority of God in their lives. Which is why Jude turns from verse 5 to verse 6 to the subject of the dishonor of rebellion against God. In verse 6, Jude mentions angels who did not keep their own domain and they abandoned their home And end up being kept by God in darkness. And what he wants us to see is the dishonor of rebellion against God. These angels who knew the light and the glory of heaven. End up imprisoned in the outer darkness of the underworld. Why? Because they have an authority problem. They'd rather be God themselves. Now there are three different views of what in the world Jude is talking about. One of the great things of working through the Scripture methodically is you have to interpret passages that are a bit challenging from time to time. Verse 6 is one of those. Jude is either talking about an unknown fall of the angels that's not recorded anywhere else in Scripture, or he's telling us about the fall of Satan, which is typified in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, and then mentioned by Jesus in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, or... He's writing about the story that we read in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, where the sons of God have relations with the daughters of men and produce an evil race of men who end up bringing about God's judgment through the flood. This last view that the sons of God refers to angels is, is not uncommon. In fact, it was the predominant view at the time that Jude was writing. Sons of God refers to angels in Job 1, 6 and Job 2, 1 and Job 38, 7. And until recently I've I've rejected this view, but the the more I think about it, the more it makes sense of the reality that there are some demons who are enchained, and yet there are other demons who still roam free. So I, I'm more open to this view after this week of study than I have been in the past, but I, I'm not really sure. I'm not a hundred percent certain whether it's an unknown fall of the angels or the Fall of the angels consistent or commensurate with the fall of Satan, or this this other view of what's going on in Genesis 6 1 through 4. Here's what's important to know. Regardless of the precise interpretation of the background that Jude has in mind, the point he's making, the point of application to our lives, doesn't change. Jude is saying that the people who have infiltrated the church and have no regard for the authority of God in their life are like fallen angels who were not content to be with God. They were not content with the sphere of authority that God gave them. They always wanted more. The imposters, like the angels, are not satisfied with their place or their position in God's plan. You ever know people like that? It's just always stretching, always agitating, always looking for the next thing. They want visibility. They want attention. They want people to know they're important. They cannot rest in God's providence and they seek to make a mess of God's plan. And what Jude wants us to know is there are everlasting consequences for not resting in the sovereignty of God. The angel's failure to keep what God had given them, to guard their position and to love and to to trust what it is that God had already given to them leads them to lose everything that they had. Think about it. They were in the, the light of the glory of the Son of God and they end up being kept and imprisoned in metaphorical chains until the day of God's judgment at the return of Christ. Their current imprisonment in chains in utter darkness, as bad as that is, is just a prelude to what's still to come. They will face the eternal fire that, as Jesus says, has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25:41). As Schreiner writes, free spirits and celestial powers, as they once were, they are now shackled and impotent. That's a picture of what happens to churches, by the way, who will refuse to respond to people who constantly make church about them. They end up getting trapped. Churches can't walk in the counsel of the wicked and expect to have the blessing of God. When a person finds out they have cancer, what do they do? I know what I would do. This is the question they ask. What are the treatment options and when can we start? You, you go to the doctor this week and you find out you've, you've got cancer. That's what you're asked: What are the treatment options and when can we start? Like five minutes from now, that'd be great. Oh, two minutes, perfect. But churches, when they find out there's, there's a mess in the camp, there's people making a mess of the faith, we, we want to come up with all other types of solutions other than the solution. And what Jude is saying is when there's a cancer in the body of Christ, you get it out. Aiken notes that by pursuing their own glory, the fallen angels gave up heaven and got hell. They gave up being servants of God, and they got being slaves of Satan. They gave up light and they got darkness. They gave up freedom and they got chains. They traded the great honor of serving among the heavenly host for the incredible disgrace of not glorifying God, but always seeking to undermine Him. Watch out for those, Jude is saying, for those who are always angling and pot-stirring and never willing to consider a suggestion and are only satisfied when they're messing things up and trying to tear things apart by attacking God's people. They are dangerous. They dishonor God. And as Jude's final example makes clear, they are headed for destruction. So, first, we need to remember the destruction that comes from belief. And then we need to remember the dishonor of rebellion. And finally, we must remember the destiny of the immoral. Verses 5 through 7 are one unit, one package of thought in Jude's letter. But it's progressing from verse 5. To verse seven, it's intensifying, right? They were in verse five; they were destroyed. What does that mean? Well, maybe it just means they died. Maybe it doesn't have this eternity that's connected to it. But then in verse six, Jude tells us not only are they held in chains, but there's a future judgment that's coming. And then in verse seven, we're wondering, well, maybe that just applies to Satan and the angels. Surely that doesn't apply to people. And then Jude says in verse seven, "Eh." remember Sodom and Gomorrah? Of course, people are subject. To the wrath of God. Here's what Jude is saying. In verse 7. Don't forget the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah stands as an example of the punishment of eternal fire. That awaits the ungodly. More than 20 times in the Bible. Sodom and Gomorrah are mentioned as such an example. We often forget that God came in judgment of these cities. Do you remember why? In Genesis 18, 20, and 21, sometimes we get a picture of God up there in heaven. He's just like, I can't wait to judge. I can't wait to judge. That's not God. But the cry of people in the countryside came up to heaven against Sodom and Gomorrah because of their severe oppression of other people. And God heard the cries of people, would you take care of these wicked cities? And God comes down to see if it is so. God is a gracious God. He's a patient God. But eventually he will act. There's some here this morning. It is likely there are some here this morning who will face God's everlasting fire. If they do not stop trying to take the place of God in their own lives. But God is patient. He's not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance, 2 Peter 3, 9. He wants sinners to repent and run to Jesus, but Jude wants us to know that if you refuse, you will bear an everlasting penalty for your rebellion against the everlasting God. God knows who the intruders are. He knows those who ignore his authority. He knows those who are the rabble-rousers causing trouble at every turn and the Flames of hell await if they will not repent, God says. Now the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah were many. They were known for their pride and their disregard of the poor. Ezekiel 16, 49. But Jude emphasizes that they indulged in gross immorality. Which means they refused, excuse me, it means that they gave themselves over to fornication, to illicit behavior. Specifically, they went after strange flesh. In other words, instead of going after one flesh, uh, one man and one woman becoming one flesh for life, they went after strange flesh. This is very clearly the mention of homosexuality. So in two descriptions of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, first, every type of sexual sin is covered, and then specifically, homosexuality is highlighted. The Bible is clear, church. We live in a culture that doesn't want the clarity of the Bible. But the Bible could not be more clear. God created sex. It is beautiful. It is good. It is wonderful. It is to be enjoyed within a monogamous marriage between one man and one woman for life. But it is only to be used in God's way and for God's purposes. The Bible says, and Jesus confirms, sex is to be enjoyed by one man and one woman for life, end of sentence. All other uses of God's good gift are evil and they introduce pain and heartache and turmoil. Why? Because they violate God's good design for the use of God's good gift. You can't violate God's authority and end up avoiding the consequences. It's like spiritual gravity. I remember when I was a kid, I thought I could be Superman and just dive off my deck. It didn't work very well. You can't violate God's good design for sex and it not have consequences in your own life, in your marriage, in culture, it's impossible. Proverbs 6.32 is clear. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself doesn't. In Romans 1, Paul clarifies for us that rampant sexual sin is the clearest evidence of a society that has rejected God's truth And been given over to his judgment. Could a truer sentence be spoken of our country? In our country the signs of God's judgment abound. 60 million human beings aborted since 1973. 80% of men aged 18 to 30 regularly viewing illicit material online. 10 million couples, that's 20 million individuals living together without being married. Even though it's a violation not only of God's good design, but it's also just knuckleheaded. Did you know statistically, if you want your marriage to work, one of the worst things you could do is live together before you get married? Like, like if you were a statistician going into marriage, the last thing you would do is cohabitate before you marry, unless you just want your marriage to fail. It rapidly, it rapidly increases the odds of divorce in your marriage. That, that's not just a Christian truth. That's a truth that applies to all marriages everywhere. God designed sex to unite a man and a woman as one inseparable flesh, covenanted together as a picture of God's love for His church. Sex, therefore, is not to be entered into casually. It is not for a boyfriend or a girlfriend or an acquaintance or someone you meet while traveling out of town. It is not to unite a woman and a woman, a man and a man, a woman and a, somebody else's husband or somebody else's wife or a person in a computer screen. All alien uses of sex bring damage to our minds and our lives and they are subject to God's judgment. Because misusing sex violates God's good design for the good gift of sex. One man, one woman, for life. But you want some good news? You can repent. God will heal. He will give you the courage and the strength to live for Him in this vitally important area of life and obedience. And I want you to notice something. Later in the letter, in verse 16, Jude is not going to specifically mention the sexual, sexual sin as one of his charges against the impostors. That's because Jude is making a broader point and he's using sex as this bright line of clarity. There's no gray area about what God has said in this area. And when people willy-nilly, do you all know what that means? Can I say that? When they just flagrantly violate God's authority in the area of sex, it's a clear example of what jude is talking about but what he wants us to realize is whether it's human sexuality or in any other area every violation of god's authority deserves the punishment of eternal fire children obeying their parents listening to others in authority People paying their taxes and obeying the government. People submitting to the church authorities that God has placed in their life. All of these signs of God's authority we are to submit to. And the everlasting fire that Jude mentions that awaits sinners is called elsewhere in the New Testament, hell. Of the 12 times that word occurs in the New Testament, 11 Occur on the lips of Jesus. Did you know Jesus believes in hell? And if Jesus believes in hell, guess what? So should we. If judgment is not coming against sin, the cross does not make sense. Why would Jesus endure the agony of the cross if hellfire was not coming against those who do not receive him? Bruce Waltke insightfully observes this. People deny the doctrine of final judgment. Because they don't want to give life such dignity that decisions right now impact an eternal future in a decisive and definitive way. Now is the day of salvation. Decisions made now do impact eternity. Which is why Jesus says that it would be better to enter eternity with only one eye or with only one hand than to be cast into hell. And in a gathering of people this large, I know there are some who are thinking, I think that's me. I've been a rebel. I've been a pretender. I've been a divider. I've been in church my whole life, but church has really just been about me, not about Jesus. I, I fear when I hear about those who we delivered from slavery and were part of the party, but now God is calling them to something new that I'm not willing to obey. I fear that like the angels, I get around the things of God, but I'd rather the glory come to me than to Jesus. And I, I think about Sodom and Gomorrah, and that the fact that they clearly violated God's command and His authority. And I, I think about my own life, and I, there's, there's nothing in my life that indicates that I've been transformed by the Holy Spirit and been made new in the inner man. I I am the Israelites who didn't enter the land. I I am the angels who had the opportunity to see the goodness of God and and wanted more for myself. I, I am Sodom and Gomorrah who made it all about myself and violated God's good law. I have good news. The church is made up of people Just like that. You see, God is still in the business of changing gross, vile sinners into rescued saints. Paul says, don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You see this, verse 11? Some of you can say this, can't you? Such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. There's hope today today for those who have been stubbornly pretending and rejecting the authority of God because He welcomes all who will repent and washes you white as snow in the blood of the Lamb and changes you by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit of God. Yes, God will judge forever those who do not believe, those who rebel against His authority. But this morning, He's still being patient. Holding open an invitation for those who will run to Jesus. Repent and believe. So this morning, as I conclude with a prayer and we stand and sing in just a moment. I want to encourage you. If that's you, hanging on to your sin when God is trying to set you free. Don't let another day go by without running to Jesus and entering the promised land of His rest. Would you pray with me? Our great God and King, we thank you. For the promise of life everlasting in your son. We thank you that the sins that we have committed may be cast as far as east is from west. We thank you God that you sent Jesus to spare us from the judgment that we deserved. God multiply in our hearts an appreciation for the mercy that you've given to us in Christ. God if we could see for just a moment the terror that awaits those who do not repent we would be quick to repent. God, I pray if there's even one this morning who's hanging on to a sinful thought or attitude or behavior, God, that they would run to Jesus and leave it at His feet. Be restored and be healed and walk out of this place a new man or a new woman for the glory of Christ. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.